All right, good morning. Uh, baggage here is this universal term that we all have for this weight that we all carry around. Uh, maybe it's you know, various life experiences that shape the way that we see the world and we see others. Baggage can come from when you were a child, uh, maybe the way that your parents raised you, and now it's still affecting you as a grown adult. And this baggage, what once started off as a lightweight, the longer that you carry it, the heavier that it gets. Now, to make this illustration really real, I put uh, blankets and pillows in here, and I, I could not go much longer. But this morning, we all carry baggage with us. We've all entered into this sanctuary this morning with various life experiences and difficulties that affect the way that we see ourselves and others, and sometimes even Jesus and the church. When we open the letter to 1 Corinthians by Paul, we are dealing with, we are getting a a very close-up view of a church that has a lot of baggage. It's a multicultural church that's come from different perspectives, different backgrounds, and the way that they are behaving. Paul has a lot to say about it. If maybe you have spent some time in 1 Corinthians, and if you have, good job. Maybe you're coming into this service this morning with some baggage about 1 Corinthians and some of the things that it says, like Paul talking about baptizing the dead or women remaining silent in church or women wearing a head covering. This letter is a tough letter. But the main primary purpose of Paul's letter is to correct the church's skewed theology and view everything through the lens of what God has done in Christ Jesus. This church, because they have a lot of baggage, they have skewed the way that their sexual relationships are are playing out within the church where there are affairs happening in the church and the church celebrates it. We have people in the church that are eating meat that are sacrificed to idols, and they don't know if it's okay or right, and it's causing others to sin. They don't know what to do. They have some in the church that are gathering together, and they're getting drunk on the communion wine. And those that are poor among them, when they come in, they don't have anything to partake. And this is one of the most difficult statements that Paul says to this church in 1 Corinthians 11, 17. I have it on the screen. Listen to what Paul says to them. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine just the gut punch that that is? I mean, I I imagine that for our church. If, you know, we were to hear from Paul today, if we had a modern day Paul, and he looked at inside of Alpine and the way that we gather and the way that we do Sunday school or Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or worship, and they said, your meetings do more harm than good. That is a hard saying. So this morning, here's what our goal is. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do four things, three things. The first thing is we're going to look at three things that are going to help us to understand this letter. Like we said, if you spent any time in Corinthians, you would have come across some really challenging passages. So how are we supposed to deal with those today? Corinthians is one of those letters that we swing on pendulums. Because it's hard, we might swing the pendulum to one side to say, well, it's irrelevant, it doesn't really mean much for us today, so I can just kind of disregard what it says. 
But others have taken the pendulum and swung it to the other side, and they've tried to make it as literal of an application as they can, and taking on what Paul says in Corinthians. So where are we to line out? What are some ways, helpful ways that we can understand this letter? Second, we're going to look at a little bit of the history and the background about what we know about the city of Corinth and the church. It's not meant to be a history lesson this morning, but knowing the history will help us to read and understand the rest of the letter. And then lastly, what we're going to do with all of this in mind, we're going to look at the first nine verses very briefly of how Paul opens up this letter. Okay, are you ready? All right, we have sermon notes on the back if you want to grab some. We're going to kick off quickly with the three things that will help us to understand this letter. The first one is this, to come to the letter with humility, to come to the letter with humility. We must all take on the assumption that it is going to take some work for us to understand this letter, because quite frankly, we're reading someone else's mail. We're reading a letter from Paul to a church that happened 2,000 years ago, And did you know what's interesting about 1 Corinthians is it's actually not the first letter that Paul wrote to this church. 1 Corinthians is actually probably more like 2 Corinthians, and the 2 Corinthians we have is probably more like 4 Corinthians. There's two letters that we have that are missing. We don't know where they are, but that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't uh, diminish the authority of Scripture. It just means that we have to do extra work. Let me show you how we know this. In 1 Corinthians 5... Uh, It says this, starting in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but a sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. So we see already that Paul has previously addressed this church before. So we're coming in on the second half of a conversation. We don't know what they wrote to Paul. We don't know what Paul wrote in his first letter. So we have to do some work to understand what Paul means in our second, in in this letter of 1 Corinthians. So first, it takes humility because we're coming in the middle of a conversation. The second, we must come to this letter on its own terms, meaning this. Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago in a language that is now dead. No one speaks in this old Greek anymore. To a city that is now gone. To a history and culture that is no longer flourishing. So for us, what we have to do is we have to understand as much about what is going on so that we can understand the application for us today. Scripture does not change meanings. This does not mean that Scripture is going to change as it changes hands, it changes meanings for different people. What the letter meant to the very first Christians is what it will mean for us today. Scripture does not change in that way. But it does mean that we need to understand culturally what is relevant and happening in this time and context. The third thing, and this is going to be the most difficult thing, because it's one of the more more difficult things for me, is we must come to this letter without forcing answers from it. We read really strange passages in this text, and it's going to be okay for us to say, I don't know. It's going to be okay for us to say, 
I'm not entirely sure. You see, there's not a one-for-one ratio for us for a temple to a false god where they're getting meat for their meals. I mean, we go down to Max to pick up chicken and beef, right? We don't go to the local temple where it's been sacrificed to another god. So it's not a one-for-one for us. So we can't always come to this letter and force it to give us answers. 1 Corinthians is not a theological reference book. It is a letter from a real person to real people inspired by the real spirit of God. It has application for us today, but we can't force our, our hand on it, okay? So what do we know about the city of Corinth? This will be really important for us. First, we know this, that Corinth was a political capital of the province of Achaia in, Roman, in the Roman Empire. Old Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC, but it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar 100 years later, around 44 BC, which means this, it was a new and upcoming port city. Corinth was directly tied to a port, which means that you had all types of people coming in from different backgrounds, religions, nationalities, language. Imagine Corinth as a combination of New Orleans, Las Vegas, San Francisco, New York, and it's all in this one city. You have a bunch of different people from a bunch of different backgrounds, and it shapes the culture of Corinth and the people that Paul is writing to. Second, we know this, that it was strategically placed. Corinth controlled uh, the movement between Italy and Asia, and the ships would go through on rollers uh, in that city. It was a port city where trade and wealth were great. It was a place that was thriving. You've heard the term old money, and we know the term old money means that uh, if you have, say, old money in Alexandria, it's a couple of families that have all the property and wealth in that town. But Corinth isn't old money. Corinth would be new money. Corinth would be the place where you could go and try and climb the social ladder to make a name for yourself, to build yourself up. It was cutthroat, probably, and a place where you could go and be who you want to be. And for Paul, this is the perfect place to plant a church. Corinth was known for a thriving trade and prostitution, among other things. It had temples that worshipped other gods. And here you have Paul planting a church. What do we know about the church in Corinth? From Acts 18, we know that Paul stayed there for about 18 months, which is going to be critical for us to remember. Paul didn't just visit an off-church plant. Paul lived with the people in the church He worked with them. He knew them all probably by name. He probably knew most of their stories. I mean, this is a place where Paul spent a lot of time. We also know that the church was an absolute disaster. Paul tells them that they were boastful, superior. They thought that they were at the top of the spiritual mountain, They were deeply affected by their own honor and shame culture, which we know Jesus does away with. We have people within the church that are using other people to get ahead. Paul separates this letter in four or five different ways. Divisions that are happening in the church, food and drink, uh, sex and relationships, the gathering of the local church, and the denial of the bodily resurrection. Paul's going to address all of this. But do a mental exercise with me for a moment. 
imagine that next Sunday, or imagine this Sunday, that after church we're going to have a church fellowship. We're actually not going to do communion here. We're going to do communion over there. And as people are gathering in the church to pray together, to open scripture and read, you walk over to the other building and you see all of the Sunday school teachers, all the deacons, and all the elders drunk on wine. (laughs) How blown would your mind be, especially in a Southern Baptist church, that all of these leaders in the church would just be absolutely trashed because they were drunk on wine? Or imagine this, within our local body, I mean, we know Corinth, the church, was probably 50 to 100, 50 to 150 people, so all really well-known, a tight-knit group. Imagine within our own tight-knit group, we had multiple affairs going on within the church. And instead of calling people to repent, we celebrate it. We think it's a good thing. Man, enjoy your freedom in Christ. Go and do what you want. Do what makes you happy. It would be absolutely crazy. It'd be insane. And it's no wonder we open 1 Corinthians and we see Paul say this, your meetings do more harm than good. You'd be tempted to say, ah, it's just, maybe we should leave it. Maybe we should be done. With meetings that do more harm than good. Deep sin in the church. I mean, deep sin that for Southern Baptists, we'd even be saying like, man, are y'all even saved? What's going on here? You're drinking wine. We do grape juice, right? We'd be wondering what in the world's going on. But I want you to see how Paul opens up this letter. And I want you to feel the weight of his words. For people that do more harm than good, notice how he opens up this letter. Starting in verse two, he says this, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He says this, you are waiting for the revealing of Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you until the end and you will be guiltless before him. What? There is this radical generosity in Christ Jesus that Paul is opening up with to a people who are ruining their lives in their relationships, who are getting drunk on the communion wine, who are having these power structures, putting other people down. What does he call them? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart in Christ Jesus, held firm by Christ Jesus, to be blameless in front of Christ Jesus. This is an incredible way to open up this letter and where it needs to meet us today before we even start to go through it. This morning, thinking about the baggage that you've come in here with, I don't know a lot of what it is. I do know my own. I do know that my own tends to um, keep me awake, maybe, as I try and fall asleep at night. I do know about you know, the last four years of pastoring here, and I've often wondered, man, have we done more harm than good? Have, have, are we following the Lord Jesus rightly? Maybe it's a former relationship for you that's really affecting your current relationship in your marriage. Maybe it's the trauma of loss of a loved one, and you don't know how Jesus comes to make these things new. You don't know how he meets you where you are because the pain is still very visceral. It's real. It's tangible. You feel it. It follows you. 
Maybe it's just dumb mistakes that you've made with your family or your finances or just whatever it is, and you just carry this baggage with you all around. Here's what Paul wants you to hear. That does not define you. Christ Jesus does. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you have been sanctified, set apart by his blood, held to the end, guiltless until the last day. Held firm by who? You? No, by him. And Paul opens up the letter this way. And there's a few things that I want us to see this morning. The first in the radical generosity of Jesus. How do we have this radical generosity of Jesus? It's by the covenant by his blood. We read it in Matthew 26 this morning. We see covenants all throughout scripture about what God is going to do for his people, what he promises to do for his people. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he breaks bread and he pours them some wine and he says, take it, eat this. This is the new covenant of my body and my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what this means. We don't use the word covenant a lot in our everyday language, but let me paint it in this illustration for you. I've used it before, but I think it's helpful for us. When Jessica and I uh, first got married, uh, we had the same advice from our parents, uh, and we talked about it a few times before we got married, that divorce for us was off the table. Divorce was not an option. No matter what happened, how far we got along, divorce for us, it just, we weren't going to go there. And here's what that covenant, that commitment did for us. One, it secured our position to one another. I know that no matter what happens with Jessica and I, you know, foolish decisions that I make or she makes, whatever it is, I know that I am secure in my standing as her husband because of her commitment to me, because of her commitment to our marriage. She knows that her position is secure with me because of my commitment to our marriage. It makes us secure, but you know what it also does? It provides this overwhelming, safe place for us. This means that as life goes on and the mistakes that we make we know because each of us are committed to the marriage that this is a safe place for us. Now, even more than this, even more than a marriage, and I think this is why Paul uses the illustration and imagery of marriage to talk about Jesus in the church, even more than that, here's what we have in Christ Jesus. One, we are secure in him by what? By him, by his blood, by what he's done. Scripture will say, even though you are faithless, he is faithful. We are secure by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the second wonderful thing. We're safe. Here's what that means. You might have been in a church where you've heard um, sayings by pastors that are trying to be helpful. They're just like, you know, cast all your cares or all, all your sin at the foot of the cross or at the feet of Jesus. And it's like, all right, well, what does that really mean? Like, where do I go to find his feet? Or where's that one cross at that I need to put things down? Like, you know, we could take these things too literal. But what the covenant does, what safety does, is that mean, it means that we can bring all of our baggage, all of, 
all of this angst that we have, the loss of loved ones, the trauma that we might have experienced within our life from overbearing parents or abusive parents or just whatever it is, we can take all of this and see it through the lens of the resurrection to know, one, it does not define me. It doesn't mean this is who I am. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. I have been taken by the covenant of his blood. It's not who I am. It means that we can safely bring it before Jesus and work through it. This might mean you need to get good Christian counseling to work through some of your baggage. It means, might mean that you need to spend a lot of time in deep, concerted prayer to Christ Jesus. But what it absolutely does mean is that you are safely not defined by it. You're defined by Christ. Christ has you and he holds you. Your position in Christ is sanctified, set apart, held firm to the end. How is it possible? Because it's not up to me. If it was possible for me to lose my salvation, I would have already lost it. But Jesus Christ holds us safely and securely until the end. Here's the other wonderful thing about the security and the safety of this covenant of Jesus is that the covenant of Jesus has no terms and conditions to receive his mercy. There's no terms and conditions that you must sign on the dotted line before you receive the mercy of Jesus. All you must do is come to him in faith. Come to Jesus in faith. Believe Jesus Christ as Lord and his blood covers you. The new covenant of his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The radical generosity of Jesus is that you are more loved than you could ask, think, or imagine. Paul wants us to see through this lens. Notice in these first nine verses the amount of times Paul uses the phrase, in Christ or in him. He says that we are sanctified in Christ, that we have grace from God in Christ Jesus, that we are enriched in him, that in Christ he will sustain us to the end. What Paul is wanting us to focus our attention on, to move our gaze to, is not our baggage, not what we think defines us, not what follows us around or keeps us up at night, but in Christ Jesus, we have safety and security, and the last thing we have is power. Now, this is a word that I've not liked to use, I'll be honest, with uh, Jesus and his name and power, because it's like, I, I don't really know how that you know, plays out. What does that mean that I have power can I zap things now? What is power? What is that? The power of Christ Jesus gives us this ability. Because we are fully and completely loved in Christ Jesus, it gives us the power to fully and completely love others. Because we are fully and completely loved in Christ Jesus, we can fully and completely love others. One of the very difficult things about the radical generosity of Jesus is not that it's for me. Like I can, I can sometimes come to terms with that. But what can be tough for us is that the radical generosity of Jesus is for others too. That it's for those who look down on us, who push us away, those in the church that are getting drunk on the wine or just doing everything that we think is wrong, just every out of bounds decision we think they can make, the generosity, the radical generosity for them is in Christ Jesus as well. It's for them. And so because I am fully and completely loved, he gives me the power to fully and completely love. And here's what Paul's gonna say in the letter to Ephesians, how he transitions in this way. He will say, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
to imitate him in all of your ways, to lay down your life for one another. How do I have the power to see my life as being laid down for another to the point of death it calls me for my wife? How can I see that? Because Christ has died for me. Because I'm secure in his power and his love and it's safe. This world is not my home. It's not what I own. My inheritance is in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we talked this past Wednesday night about uh, the wonderful, incredible rule and reign of Jesus. And what we'll talk about really with our uh, salvation, if you have uh, been baptized, we might use the terminology that I've been saved. Um, I've got baptized, I'm saved. And we'll tend to think of that as just like this escapism from hell, that I am no longer destined for hell, but now one day I'm destined to be in the good place in heaven when I die. But did you know that the Bible uses much more powerful language than that? That it's not just escapism from a place, but rather it's a position that we are seated in with Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus is seated in the heavenly places, that he has all authority and power over all things on heaven and earth. And you know what it says about us? That we're seated with him. That you're seated with him. It's not that you will one day be seated with him, but it is, it's present, Ephesians 2, that you are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavens. Here's what this means. That because of our position with Christ Jesus, we are safe and we are secure. We have the power not to look down on each other. But it means that we should take very seriously the way that we do church. That we should take very seriously the way that we view others. Because Jesus lives, we now live with Jesus. I don't have the authority or the calling to write off the church. It's popular in our culture to look at the church with all of its ills, all of its warts, all of the bad things that have happened, everything that's gone on, and just say, oh man, it's not worth it anymore. We might say there's more harm that's happening than good. And Paul will say, yeah, exactly right. That's why we have this high calling. You have been sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus. The letter to 1 Corinthians is very pastoral. It's going to show us how we should organize and live our lives if we seek to follow Christ Jesus. So here's what we need to understand today before we really dive into this next week. One, if you are in Christ Jesus, your position is secure and safe by the covenant of his blood. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. No works of your own that you may boast but by the work and the authority of Christ Jesus. Rest securely in that. Second, if you are not a uh, follower of Christ Jesus or you're still like, wrestling how these things work out, what does it mean for me to follow after Jesus? Know that you can freely come to him in faith, but you must come. You must come. He will take you as you are, he doesn't require you clean yourself up. There are no terms and conditions. All you must do is come. And so that's my invitation for you this morning. 
And if you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, come to him in faith and rest securely and safely in the blood of Jesus. As we close this morning, I want us to think about uh, the words from Jesus in Matthew 26 that we take and eat, that we, he, Jesus literally wants us to have this idea that we are, we are so taken in with Christ that we're literally consuming his body and blood. That's what Jesus wants us to think and, and imagine in our minds. That through this we have the forgiveness of sins and this is a symbol, this is to remind us what Christ has done on the cross. So as we come to the table this morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are welcome to come to this table. As we come to the table this morning, come with the expectation that you will stand before Christ blameless. And that will bring us to the table with joy. And when we have this joy, let it turn our position and our posture to others and serve them with joy. Because if they are in Christ Jesus, they too will stand before him blameless. And we are Together, this body of Christ, walking, waiting for the revelation of our Lord at the end. So I invite you to come with all of your baggage, with all of the things that you've brought in this morning, and rest confidently and securely that they are forgiven in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I I thank you for the radical generosity that you have shown us. Father, that you have loved us more than we could even dare to think. So this morning, I pray that we are able to just tap into that just a little bit, to to understand. Give us, by your spirit, the wisdom to comprehend with all the saints gathered here this morning, what is the height, width, and depth of love for us who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to live lives that are securely confidently walking in light of who you are. Jesus, for those who are here this morning with baggage, let them know, Father, by your spirit, that they can safely deal with that, that they don't have to just pretend that it all goes away. But Father, help them by your spirit and by your people to begin to process that through the lens of the resurrection and that one day you will wipe all tears from our eyes and make everything new. So Jesus, I pray that we don't rush away from here, but Father, that we, we wait here, we come to the table with joy, and we worship your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.